there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 41, Family Feuds. This week, we're going to get started on the patchwork of lands that would come to form Yugoslavia. Originally called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, the nation proved to be as unwieldy as its original name. The kingdom was born not just in the aftermath of World War I, but through a winding history going back decades. I'm going to give you a big warning. This is one of those that is all about Balkan infighting. There were a whole host of events that all contributed to the tense conditions within Yugoslavia. And it might seem like a lot of ground to cover, but as I pointed out in the intro to this series, the conditions of Central Europe were essential to how World War II got to rack up such a body count. And for much of South Central Europe, it's kind of a long story. So bear with me today, and on the episodes to come. Now, much to the chagrin of many of the ethnic groups in Yugoslavia, the history of that nation was dominated by the Serbian component of it. So that's where I'll start. Like many of their neighbors, they were a conquest of the Ottoman Empire, and for centuries were an integrated part of that empire. By the early 1800s, though, Turkish authority on its frontiers was crumbling. Under pressure from Serbian uprisings, autonomy was granted and a principality of Serbia was formed. Like the Romanian principalities to the east, the new Serbian one was still technically an Ottoman possession, but for all intents and purposes, it was actually self-governing. While it included only a portion of what is today modern Serbia, the growing nationalism among Serbs meant that this wasn't going to last forever. During the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, Serbia joined in with the Russians and other revolting Balkan states against the Turks, securing its formal independence and pushing its borders southwards. From here, Serbia elevated itself to the rank of a full kingdom in 1882. As a result, Milan I of the House Obrenovic upgraded himself from a prince to the first king. His reign was relatively quiet from that point, aside from a disastrous war with the new nation of Bulgaria in 1885. In that, the Serbian army was crushed, and the kingdom was only saved via the intervention of Austria-Hungary. And yes, that's very ironic, considering everything that happened down the road. It was in fact that war that set Serbia and Bulgaria down the path to militarism. Serbia, stung by the humiliation, started taking out loans to build a huge and modernized army which, once mobilized, could reach some 350,000 men by 1912, which was gigantic for a population of only 3 million. Not to be outdone, the Bulgarians followed a similar path, and the Balkans became a heavily armed camp. Aside from this buildup, both Milan and his son and heir, Alexander I, focused on developing a bureaucratic nation-state that was modern enough to meet the many threats in the Balkans in those days. In the countryside, those changes were limited, but the capital of Belgrade enjoyed a modest population expansion to around 90,000 by 1914. Which does not sound like much, and it wasn't, but it did establish a recognizable urban life for Serbia. It also became a center of higher education, not just in Serbia proper, but for ethnic Serbs everywhere. And in that atmosphere of higher education, Ideas of nationalism and Serb identity were inculcated and spread to areas inhabited by other ethnic Serbs, but not yet part of the kingdom. It also helped radicalize Serbs who did live in the kingdom, and provided the ideology of expansion needed to stir the passions of the people. However, the truth was that Serbia still had a long way to go in terms of development, and would not be able to realize their dreams without outside help and some weak enemies. 
the nation was still overwhelmingly agrarian, and livestock exports to Austria constituted their biggest product. This was so much the only real export that the Serbian pig farmer became a lingering cliché. Industries sprouted up in Belgrade in the second city of Niche, but these were small enterprises that were not going to be the basis of industrialization. There was also a dark side to the revitalized national identity. As Serbia became more infatuated with its own ethnic background, it became less tolerant of anyone who lived outside that identity. Albanians, Muslims, Jews, and more all saw their culture as restricted as the reach of the Serbian state increased. Over time, hundreds of thousands would flee Serbia, most into either the Austrian or Turkish empires. This was going to be a reoccurring problem, as the Serbs could never quite cure themselves of their cultural chauvinism, even when they united into a multi-ethnic state. Over Milan and Alexander's reigns, though, the last years of the 1800s were fairly quiet. The early 1900s, though, were anything but, as crises grew into a series of wars. In 1903, Alexander would get himself caught up in a little too much palace intrigue. He was childless, had married an unpopular queen whom the, the elites disliked, and had a tendency to play favorites with a very small clique in the army. His handling of Serbia's government left something to be desired as well. He had come to the throne not through his father Milan's death, but abdication. Well, Milan eventually emerged from retirement and started antagonizing the powerful Radical Party under a man named Nikola Pašić. By the time Milan passed away in 1901, much of the political establishment had also turned against Alexander. As his popularity dwindled, a plot was hatched among disaffected army officers and politicians alike. On the night of May 28, 1913, Assassins entered the palace and murdered the royal couple. With their deaths, the Abrenovich dynasty was extinguished. Luckily for Serbia, there was a rival dynasty waiting in the wings. The Karadordovich dynasty had been pretenders to the Serbian throne since it had achieved autonomy, and now its most current first son, Peter Karadordovich, was elected as the new king, Peter I. Peter, with the backing of the nationalist army officers and radical party, now started taking a more aggressive approach to international affairs. The Abrinoviches had brokered good relations with the Austrians, something that had added to their unpopularity. Peter rescinded diplomatic arrangements to follow Austria's lead and brought Serbia closer to Russia. In 1906, the Austrians sought to placate the Hungarian half of their empire and raise tariffs on agricultural imports, making buying internally from Hungarian farms more attractive than importing from abroad like, say, Serbian pigs. Well, that didn't go over well with the Serbs, and they refused to acknowledge the change, to which Austria shrugged, said okay, and banned Serbian imports. This may sound slightly ridiculous, but Serbia's economy depended on offloading those hogs onto their northern neighbor. As a matter of pride and not wanting to be pushed around by the Habsburgs, Serbia refused to back down and accept the tariffs. For five years, from 1906 to 1911, the two nations stonewalled each other. The important thing to note here is that Serbia, in desperation to keep their nation going, got two very large loans from France. One was to finance the state through the tariff war, the other was to modernize the army. All of a sudden, Serbia had an additional friend in France, especially as that loan money for the army was expected to be spent on French weapons. So, all of a sudden, Serbia was not just close to Russia, but close to France. During these years, the plot further thickened when Austria annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina, 
which for brevity's sake I'll just refer to as Bosnia. It had been an Ottoman province also, but was increasingly isolated and indefensible. In 1878, the Austrians moved in and established an occupation, but importantly, not a formal annexation, leaving open the possibility that one day they would leave. Forty years later, this hope on the part of the Serbs was dashed, and the Austrians annexed it, making it a new province in their empire. Austria was not at all blind to the ambitions of the Serbian nationalists. Bosnia, then as now, had a significant Serbian minority, one that Belgrade wanted to one day absorb. The Austrians had their long-term goal of expansion further into the Balkans, and were not about to let Serbia make off with their prize. The whole affair set off a firestorm of indignation in Serbia, and among Serbian nationalists everywhere in the Balkans. Nationalist army officers immediately set about expanding underground operations in Bosnia, with an eye towards disrupting the Austrians there. The Russians, caught off guard by the annexation and embarrassed at their own inaction, promised the Serbs that they would have their backs the next time something like this happened, which in retrospect was a hell of a promise. In the meantime, the Serbs had to make do with setting up informal cells within Bosnia, oftentimes of the terrorist variety, to lay the groundwork of resistance to the Austrians. And where one door closes, another has a tendency to open. The Ottoman Empire was continuing to lose its grip, this time suffering in its province of Albania. Rebels there had succeeded in pushing them out of northern Macedonia, and the coalition of Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Greece looked hungrily at the hapless Turks. I haven't mentioned Montenegro despite it being right next to Serbia, but they were mostly along for the ride in this case. And as for their history up to this point, well, theirs was like a miniature Serbia. Formerly under the thumb of the Turks, they broke off and formed Princedom, which had just been upgraded to a kingdom at this time. I won't be touching much on them, but keep in mind, they'll be following Serbia's lead in the background. Now, the old empire still controlled a lot of land in Europe, and it suddenly seemed ripe for the taking. In 1911, the Turks also lost Libya and the Dodecanese Islands in a war to Italy. The time seemed right for other nations to snatch up some land. So, in October 1912, the small coalition of Balkan states struck, and the First Balkan War was on. The war was a miserable affair, initially fought in the fall and winter months amidst the mountains of the southern Balkans. It was also an advertisement for things to come in just two years' time. The fighting was dominated by machine guns, artillery, and mass charges, to which defending troops resorted to digging networks of trenches for protection. As a result, tens of thousands died in viciously modern battles over the course of the eight-month war. The Turks absorbed the worst of it, though, as they had totally screwed up guessing where the various coalition armies would strike from. The result was that all the coalition armies struck at the weakest concentrations of Turkish troops facing them, and the Turks went on the retreat everywhere. They were desperately trying to hang on against the Bulgarians outside Istanbul when the great powers stepped in to break the fight up. They enforced a peace treaty that gave Albania its full independence, much to the chagrin of Serbia and Greece, who each wanted a piece of it, and gave territorial awards to the coalition members. For its part, Serbia reached its modern southern borders, plus Kosovo. There was the little matter of northern Macedonia, though. The Serbians and Bulgarians had agreed to split the thing, but the Serbs found themselves in actual occupation of it. And since the Bulgarians were the strongest of the coalition militarily, nobody among their allies were inclined to make them stronger. So the Serbs told them to go kick rocks. 
The Bulgarians responded by launching the Second Balkan War at the end of June 1913 by attacking Serbia and Greece. This was definitely an ill-advised move, as Bulgaria couldn't beat both of them, and then Romania and the Turks jumped into the dogpile. By August 10th, the Bulgarians surrendered, giving up most of their claims with their former allies and also some land to Romania. It was hoped among the great powers, especially Austria, that the Balkans would be quiet now that everybody was licking their wounds. No such luck, though, as Serbia's victory overnight made them heroes among South Slav nationalists. They had doubled their territory and increased their population from three to four and a half million. That Serbian nationalism I talked about earlier all of a sudden was legitimized, and the Serbian army wanted to double down on their success and make a play for Bosnia. All they needed was an opening to provoke a war where the Russians could back them. Meanwhile, over on the other side of the Austrian border, the local South Slavs weren't sitting idle either. The first inklings of Croatian nationalism started to appear in the latter 1800s, as the city of Zagreb developed into a cultural capital for that people, and for a time enjoyed local privileges, which enabled an ethnic consciousness to really take shape. This was then followed by a reaction by the ruling Hungarians attempting to suppress that identity, but the genie was already out of the bottle by that time, and their attempts to suppress Croatian autonomy just added nationalistic fuel to the emerging fire. The occupation and eventual annexation of Bosnia only further complicated the ethnic tensions. Croatians welcomed the move, as they looked to establish ties first with the Croatian third of the population there, and also maybe find a way to break off the Serbian third from their mother culture and induce them to think of themselves as Croats too. Okay. Since we're arriving at the moment where Serbians and Croatians and Bosnians are going to be interacting, I might as well make a couple delicate points. Despite their rough mutual history, the ethnic groups probably have more in common than they don't, which might be why they rub each other the wrong way. Their language is mutually intelligible, with the differences being in dialect, and they share a common ancestry. Their divisions come firstly with religion. Croatians were Catholic, Serbians were Orthodox, and a third of the Bosnians were Muslim. The other main difference was where each fell in the pecking order of the empire they were occupied by. Croatians fell under Hungarian domination through medieval dynastic claims, which later transferred to the Habsburgs in Austria. The Serbians were conquered by the Turks, and as such were just one of many conquests in a much larger empire. The Bosniaks were local South Slavs who converted to Islam and so within Bosnia formed the local elites and landholders, which goes a long way to explaining why the Croatians and Serbians in Bosnia didn't especially like them. They were the landlords. The tensions between these groups started to increase, with the status of Bosnia as the main source of contention. With its occupation by the Austrians, new faces and new officials started pouring in, many of them Croatian, looking to advance their people's cause in the new province. The local Serbs were suspicious as hell about all that, and saw attempts at firmly establishing equality between the three groups as just an attempt to give the Croatians the space they needed to become the new masters of Bosnia. There were also culture clashes going on as well. The new Austrian administration brought a much more modern, urban life, especially in the capital of Sarajevo. The provincial town started importing modern entertainments, some high class like the theater or opera, and some distinctly lower ones like the lively red-light district. The conservative Serbs were scandalized, and news of eroding social values made its way back to Belgrade, 
where nationalists sounded the alarm that unless action was taken immediately, the upstanding values of the local Serbs could be swept away by the vices of the Austrians. Whatever the realities, the Habsburg administration served to harden the boundaries between the three ethnic groups, as well as turn the province into a prize between the larger Croatian and Serbian communities outside of it. The increased ethnic pressures coming from both outside the empire and from the Hungarians continued to cause increased political awareness among the Croatians, which prompted a pair of brothers, Antun and Sjepian Radic, to form the Croatian People's Peasant Party, or the HPSS. For our purposes, you'll only need to be keeping Stepin in mind here. The importance of this new party was that it worked to actually engage the peasants of Croatia to the nationalist cause. This is important because before, Croatian nationalism was largely the domain of the urban and intellectual scene. Now the masses were going to be called into the action. The party was also notable as it advocated for the Croatians to be made the third partner in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, separate from the others. This meant that Radic became the public face of Croatian autonomy, something he would keep for the rest of his life, even as he served prison sentences and stints of exile. A bad sign for future cooperation, though, was that he was also a very Croatian-specific nationalist. He sought to work within the Austrian Empire, which caused him to catch some flack from the pan-Slavic crowd. And working within the Empire seemed like an increasingly dim prospect immediately before World War I. The young student nationalists of both Croat and Serb backgrounds were resorting to violent protests against the Habsburg authorities, and the creaky imperial administration could only come up with the idea of forcing a showdown with Serbia to solve it, which they somehow convinced themselves would turn off the nationalist impulses of the South Slavs. On the part of those same Slavs, though, there really wasn't a plan as to what the future was going to hold for them. There was an emerging idea of a combined nation, but that wasn't at all agreed upon, with many preferring local autonomy within the Habsburg Empire. The Bosniaks, for example, were freaked out by the tide of nationalism and bound themselves deliberately with their new overlords in a bid to fend off their neighbors. The Serbs definitely weren't interested in a cultural melting pot either, as they pressed non-Slavs to leave their newly conquered territories and planned to have both Bosnian and Macedonian Slavs integrated as Serbs. And whatever the long-term plans of the various nationalists, World War I screwed everything up. For Serbia, it was a harrowing experience. The whole thing was famously kick-started by a low-level agent of those Serbian terror cells I talked about earlier, assassinating the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, on June 28, 1914. Gavrilo Princep had been involved in a failed attempt on the Archduke's life earlier in the day, and probably thought he had missed his chance but then randomly bumped into Franz's oncoming car after its driver had taken a wrong turn. He pulled out his gun and shot up Franz and his wife, killing both. This set off a crisis that resulted in Austria declaring war on Serbia, and a whole bunch more dominoes started falling after. Initially, as the war got going, things went well enough for Serbia, given how much bigger the Austro-Hungarian Empire was. The Austrians opened with an attack on Belgrade, but opted to spend a full two weeks firing artillery on the Serb front lines. Make no mistake, the Serb troops were blasted all to hell, but two weeks was overkill, and the Serbs used the time to rush the full army into place. By the time the Austrian troops moved in, they were stopped cold as the entire Serbian army was right there. The Austrians tried again in 1915, almost breaking the Serbian army, 
but were chased out of the country again. Sitting off to the side, though, was Bulgaria, which, you'll remember, had just a couple years prior gotten trounced by the Serbs. Well, they picked this moment to get their payback, and in October 1915 invaded Serbia from the south. With the Austrians attacking at the same time from the opposite direction, the Serbs realized they were screwed. But they decided not to surrender, just perform a really big retreat. The Serbian government, army, and hundreds of thousands of civilians started heading south, entering neutral Albania with the hope of being picked up by Entente ships. This was a foot march across the mountains of Kosovo and Albania during the winter, and it did not go well. Over 77,000 soldiers and 160,000 civilians died of exposure during the crossing. Those who didn't die were left starving and frostbitten after the almost two-month trek. The survivors were at least picked up and shipped to the Greek island of Corfu, which neutral Greece was not terribly happy about. We'll get to the Greeks, but they're going through a political crisis at this time as part of the leadership wanted to join with the Entente while the king and his supporters wanted to stay out. The Entente escalated the issue by occupying the port city of Salonika, just to the south of the Bulgarian border. From there, a joint French-British-Serbian army fought a static war in the mountains with the Bulgarians. It wasn't glorious, and it wasn't even terribly productive most of the time, but the Serbs remained a fighting ally through the war, and their army and government remained intact. It was in this time that Pasic, still the Serbian prime minister, began meeting with exiled Croatian and Slovene leaders. I also haven't mentioned the Slovenes up to this point, and they're another South Slav people just south of Austria. Their nationalist movement had gotten a slow start and was very, very peripheral to the movements that were struggling further to the south for Slavic self-rule. There were a few leaders, though, and they were now trying to get in on the future community. A committee was established, signed off on the Corfu Declaration, which formally called for a unified Yugoslav state. Which, at that moment, meant nothing. They were a bunch of exiles, and the entire proposed Yugoslav nation was either occupied or working for the occupiers. But war has a funny way of knocking down barriers. As the war dragged on, food became scarce in Austria, and all of a sudden a lot of Croatians and Bosnians who had wanted to work within the empire started having very big second thoughts. Material deprivation did much to cripple the legitimacy of the state, and for every day the war dragged on, full independence became the more popular option with normal people. It was in October 1918 that the dam finally burst. The Bulgarians, who were themselves starving and suffering, finally cracked and its army withdrew. The German and Austrian units couldn't hold back the Entente and vacated the southern Balkans entirely, with the Austrian army mostly disintegrating in the process. That the Serbian army had held together all these years was very fortuitous, as it was now put to the task of marching north and securing not just Serbia, but all the future Yugoslavia. In November 1918, the army had entered Bosnia and what had been southern Hungary, which is now northern Serbia. There were two immediate problems to be solved, though. One, a provisional Croatian government had been declared in Zagreb, and two, the Italians wanted to move in on the Adriatic coastline. Luckily, those problems kind of solved themselves. Croatians were heavily divided, with Radic and his ilk calling for complete independence, while others favored a partnership with the Serbs. They also didn't really have an army, and the only troops they could scrounge up were vets and POWs coming back home. This was enough to check the Italians coming from the west, mostly because their allies were keeping an eye on them and didn't want them snatching up land just yet, 
But there was a unit of Hungarians who refused to leave Zagreb, and the Croatians simply didn't have enough troops to force them out. That was enough for the Serbs, who sent the army in to force out those Hungarians. Realizing they were in over their heads, the Croatian provisional government fell by the wayside. The terms of the new Yugoslavia would be dictated by Serbia and its army. Continued Italian pressure, including the fascist adventure in Fiume, which I discussed way back in episode 7, only served to drive the non-Serbs closer to Belgrade at this critical early stage. On December 1st, 1918, the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was declared. It'd be updated to Yugoslavia in 1929, but I'm not saying Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes every time, so I'm just going to say Yugoslavia starting now. The new state was facing crippling problems from the get-go. The country was war-ravaged, especially in occupied Serbia. Belgrade had been stripped, and the farms and villages were in ruins. The whole region had suffered a devastating outbreak of typhus during the war, which was in no way helped by those famine conditions. The ravages were felt a little less to the north, which only increased the feeling of division in the new state. Zagreb, for instance, continued developing its untouched industries, and by the mid-twenties would have four times the number of enterprises as Belgrade did, despite always being the smaller town. The story was the same with finance, with Croatian banks keeping business within Croatia and declining to do business with Serbian firms. Now, economic dislocation could be expected from such a war-ravaged and fragmented area, but the real instability that was to plague Yugoslavia stemmed from the inability in creating a political framework that satisfied everyone. Given the conflicting goals of Croatian autonomy and Serbian domination, this was probably impossible, but it was the reason. The Serbs accounted for less than half the population and could never adequately assert real dominance even though they desperately wanted it, while the Croats were too small and too immediate a target by the Italians to go it alone. They had to stick together. The government was headed post-war by Pasic's rival, Lubomir Davidovic, and the prince regent, Alexander I, who took over from his ailing father, Peter, during World War I and would become king in his own right in August 1921. The complexity of the nation before them must have been intimidating. Among the South Slavs to be enfranchised were Slovenes, Croats, Dalmatians, Bosniaks, Montenegrins, Serbs, and Macedonians. Being left off the preferential list were the non-Slav, Albanian, Hungarian, Turkish, German, Jewish, and Italian minorities living in the country, which caused natural alienation among those smaller communities. Unrest also broke out in Montenegro, Kosovo, and Macedonia, requiring the army to be deployed internally almost from the beginning. Oh, and just in case you're wondering how Montenegro went from being an independent ally to being part of the new state, during World War I, the nation was also occupied, and representatives from there deposed the king who had fled into exile. When the Serbs showed back up on the scene, there really wasn't anyone around to stop them. Despite the tension, the new kingdom wasn't going anywhere for the time being, and the internal politics started kind of getting sorted out, not really, but there was at least, you know, a status quo to work from. The results of the first national elections in November 1920 left the two main Serbian parties, the Democratic Party under Davidovic and the Radical Party under Pasic, as the two biggest with an almost equal number of seats in Parliament, due in part to both parties having a national profile. Despite the Democratic Party having one more seat than the Radicals, when the two parties formed a coalition, the increasingly aged Pasic was again chosen as prime minister. The new Communist Party, only in existence for a year, 
was the next runner-up. Their success could be attributed to exposure to Marxism from returning prisoners of war from Russia and an intensely impoverished urban proletariat in Belgrade and Zagreb. The fourth significant party was the HPSS under Radich, which managed to snag a slim majority of Croatian votes. In orbit around these guys was a multitude of tiny parties scattered across all the regions of Yugoslavia. And now that a national parliament had been assembled, it was finally time to air out all their differences and hash out a constitution. Okay, but seriously, the attempt at making a constitution crashed and burned immediately. First, the ruling coalition under Pasic banned communist agitation, causing that party to walk out and boycott the proceedings. The Croatians tried to press a federalist approach and were supported by a lot of the smaller regional parties. Uh, but then Pasic cut a deal with the Bosnian Muslim faction and it became obvious the Serbs were going to get the centralized state they were angling for. Radic's faction and many of the regional groups responded by boycotting the vote on the constitution as well, which laid bare the divisions Yugoslavia would labor under going forward. The far left was going to be marginalized, while the regional political parties were always going to be looking for ways to obstruct the central government. On June 28, 1921, the anniversary of Serbia's catastrophic defeat to the Turks back in the late Middle Ages, which was not a sign of anything, no sir, the constitution was passed with around a third of the representatives abstaining. Not the best way to establish your country's legitimacy. But Pasic, having secured a centralized government, was not going to let his powers go to waste. He immediately started asserting Belgrade's and ergo Serbia's prerogatives by interfering in local governance and making appointments at lower levels of administration. There was also interference in postings within universities and schools, and the officer corps of the military maintained its Serb dominance by keeping a top-heavy approach where there were far more generals on staff than there were troops to command them. That way, the proportion of Serb to non-Serb officers would always be in Belgrade's favor. To maintain control of his radical party during his twilight years, Pasic took to handing out appointments based on party loyalty, something he would eventually pay for. He also did not shy away from playing to his base either playing up fears among ethnic Serbs across the country of minority empowerment in a bid to secure support. And even when the non-Slav minorities were enfranchised, he engaged in intimidation so brazen that during the following elections of the 20s, most preferred to abstain. The frustrating thing is that these tactics actually worked. Pasic's radicals solidified support among Serbs, and their traditional rivals among the Democratic Party faded. Turned out that when presented with a bigger playing field, the Serbian people opted to get on board with one party to push their interests with one voice. Radic and the HPSS benefited from this mindset as well, and Croatians increasingly rallied to him. His party was now the second largest in the country, and with the communists banned, Radic would become the leading opposition figure within Yugoslavia. That status didn't protect him from suffering persecution for his very loud desire for a separate Croatia, and he was exiled and jailed throughout the first half of the 20s. He admittedly did cross several lines when at various points he flirted with Mussolini in Italy and Admiral Horthy over in Hungary about them intervening in a hypothetical bid for Croatian independence. It was during one of these stints in jail during the summer of 1925 that Radic decided to change tactics. There had been an election that February, and the same pattern as before had presented itself. The Serbian radicals were the biggest party, his was the second largest. This time, though, Pasic was in need of a new coalition partner after he had exhausted his good relations with the smaller Serbian groups who had managed to shore up his position. 
Radich decided now to try and change the system from within, and offered a partnership. Pashich, eyeing a dark cloud of a corruption scandal involving his son on the horizon, decided to roll the dice, maybe figuring that a Serb-Croat unity government would be seen as a protection to himself personally. He was wrong, and in April 1926, he was forced out amidst that corruption scandal breaking out. The coalition remained in place, but a new burst of instability was about to set in that was going to destabilize Yugoslavia's democracy. And just in case you've forgotten about all the other nations in Central Europe I've gone over, and how things kind of went for them and their democracies, well, it's about to happen again. The coalition governing Yugoslavia descended into squabbling, with nothing of note really getting done in 1926. The alliance between the Serbian radicals and the Croatians under Radic squabbled and fell apart and tensely came back together again, but could never govern stably. By December 1926, Pasic approached King Alexander with a proposal to forget the whole corruption thing and ask be put back in charge. Alexander, not interested in humoring the old man, refused point-blank. It must have been a literal blow to Pasic, as he died the day after the meeting of a stroke. He was 80 years old and no spring chicken, but also he was one of the few figureheads politicians could rally around. With his death, the radicals broke apart, and politics became even more chaotic, somehow. The 1927 elections produced a government under the resurgent Democrats, now that the radicals had split. But Radich and some other smaller Serb factions banded together to force it out. Alexander, probably tired of all this, asked Radich to try his hand at forming a government. Tellingly, when push came to shove, Radich couldn't convince his own majority to support a government of his choosing. He would approach Alexander about forming a government around a military figurehead, but Alexander was not quite so desperate and said no. As 1927 turned to 1928, the political atmosphere reached a boil as Serbian nationalists chafed under the leadership of a Croatian separatist. This culminated in a Serbian representative pulling out a gun in Parliament and shooting Radic in the chest. Radic was rushed to a doctor, and it was expected that he would pull through, but his condition worsened, and he died a few weeks later on August 8, 1928. From that point until the end of the year, Parliament was in permanent crisis, and in December there were riots in Zagreb. It was by this moment that Alexander had had enough. For the past decade, there had been 24 distinct governments formed, none serving anything close to their complete terms, and now the creaking system had stopped working entirely. On January 6, 1929, the day before Eastern Orthodox Christmas, he dissolved Parliament and removed the Constitution. He would be ruling as the royal dictator. With the political class in chaos and the army backing him, there weren't a whole lot of people around to stop him. His turn to dictatorship would unsurprisingly usher in an era of more direct rule and the live-and-let-live attitude that was permitted due to the constant political chaos coming from Belgrade started to wind down, which is where we'll check back in with Yugoslavian politics when we enter the 30s. But I'm not going to leave the Yugoslavs just quite yet. We've covered the political goings-on, but in a nation as large and diverse as this, there was a lot more happening during the 20s. Urban life exploded in the main population centers of Belgrade and Zagreb, with both towns more than doubling their populations. Each continued as centers of culture for the Serb and Croat peoples and there was intense competition between the two cities. While Zagreb saw a flourishing of traditional Croat culture and rapid expansion of its manufacturing sector, Belgrade continued to be a city thickly populated by government bureaucrats. While the capital lagged in industry, it did embrace a more internationalist culture. 
Traditional theater, cinema, ballet, all became well-established in Belgrade. A lot of that was due to tens of thousands of Russian expats setting up shop there after their side lost the Civil War, though their misery was Yugoslavia's gain. The rivalry between the two cities, though, was not exactly of the healthy variety, and only deep in the sense that the Serbs and Croats were two distinct peoples not really meant to cohabitate. Elsewhere, there were changes out in the countryside as well. Pasic's governments looked at Serbia's conquest as a handy pressure valve to resettle excess population and reward war veterans. If you remember back in the Italian episodes, much of the discontent stirred up was due to the promise of land redistribution not happening. So it was definitely to Yugoslavia's benefit the state was able to summon the wherewithal to actually make those reforms happen. In Kosovo, this meant uprooting and encouraging local Albanians to leave in favor of incoming Serb settlers, who attained their new farms easily enough that they were paranoid that one day they'd have to give the land back. Easy come, easy go, that sort of thing. It also wasn't quite the economic boon that they thought it would be, as the land was hard and underdeveloped. To the north, in the Vojvodina, the land had been formerly been Hungarian, and if you remember anything about Hungarian farms, is that they loved their noble-run estates. This was an easy target for the Yugoslavs, because nobody liked Hungarian nobles, and the land was parceled off to Serbian families. Problem with this, those families were new to the area, and beyond being settled, didn't get a whole lot of support from the government to get up and running. So, productivity in the area took a nosedive as the settlers tried to get the hang of their new farms. Meanwhile, the old hired hands of the estates, mostly Hungarians, were out of luck. The new settlers operated smaller units and didn't need them, so unemployment among those Hungarians skyrocketed. Industrially, Yugoslavia experienced a massive jump on paper. I say on paper because the development was not shared evenly across the nation. The overall country enjoyed a 40% jump in growth over the 20s. But I mentioned earlier that Croatia was the successful region in that regard, and its success was not really replicated elsewhere in the country. This is due to the Croats having access to a well-developed banking system able to fund expansion, a system which was also reluctant to work outside of Croatia. They also had contacts with the fully industrialized Austrians and Czechs, and thanks to those relationships were able to tap into their technical expertise. The story was similar, though on a lesser scale, in Slovenia, which also benefited from its former Austro-Hungarian connections in developing its local industries. The lack of development in the railroad network only made this worse. Most of the rail lines ran north-south, which made sense as the main economic activity was agricultural exports to their neighbors, but this meant connections between the subunits of the country was extremely poor. An enterprising Croat industrialist might have looked at an under-industrialized city like Belgrade as an opportunity to expand into, but the lack of connection meant it made more economic sense to stay home or look elsewhere. One other thing to note was that this industrial expansion, like most everywhere else in Central Europe, was based on well-established industries like textiles, which, while better than nothing, meant the country lagged in more technically advanced sectors like motorization. Diplomatically, the news was a little better. As mentioned in previous episodes, Yugoslavia formed one part of the Little Entente, an alliance with Czechoslovakia and Romania. Its primary goal was preventing a Hungarian resurgence, and it worked like a charm as the Hungarians had no chance against the three. The other bad neighbor for Yugoslavia was Italy. They had been mostly successful in holding off Italian claims on the Adriatic, having to forego some islands off the southern coast of the Istrian Peninsula and the city of Zara, modern-day Zadar. While minor compared to the full extent of Italian claims, their transfer did set off a firestorm of Croatian indignation, 
which was yet another blow to the whole national unity thing. But the peace with the Italians held through the 20s, although Mussolini made constant attempts to undermine and outflank the Yugoslavs. The Italians would at various points plot with Croatian separatists, approach Horthy about an Italo-Hungarian alliance against Yugoslavia, and as discussed last episode, began undermining Albanian sovereignty with an eye towards turning that country into a beachhead on the far side of the Adriatic. But despite all that, and also constant Italian war plans being directed against Yugoslavia, the two nations kept the peace. A big reason was that Italy didn't want a repeat of World War I, where they attacked straight into a bunch of mountains and made fools of themselves, and also because France was counted among Yugoslavia's friends. South, things were calm. Albania was no threat, Greece was a traditional ally that had its own issues, and we'll see later, Bulgaria simply didn't have any fight left in it. Looking around, the biggest danger to Yugoslavia was, well, Yugoslavia. The nation, from its earliest days, simply could never form a national identity, and the deferring ambitions of its inhabitants prevented one from coming into existence. That its political leadership was constantly on the verge of collapse, or in the process of collapsing, or recovering from a periodic collapse, meant that one could never be hashed out either. King Alexander would try to impose one from above when he seized total power, but he'll wind up finding the same frustrations that so many other autocrats had before him. A combination of ethnic rivalry and external menace is going to be a Gordian knot the kingdom was never going to unravel. Okay, now I'm ready to leave Yugoslavia. Next week, we're hopping over to Bulgaria, one of the nations most frustrated in their ambitions during these days. Look forward to that for next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.